This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. We are back from our rare week of vacation at the end of the year. Zachary, did you miss the podcast while we were away? Well, I missed uh, these wonderful conversations, but uh, I certainly didn't miss all the preparatory work. That right, goes in. <laughs> right. It was nice to have a, have a week off. Well, we're in for a real treat today. We're starting 2023 with our first podcast of the new year with one of our favorite people, a leading scholar, but, but more than that, a, a true mensch, someone who is... Uh, studying uh, psychology and society and leadership at a cutting edge, but also bringing that work to uh, a large audience uh, around the world. Uh, This is someone who's well known to many of our listeners, uh, Professor Art Markman. Art, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's, it's really a pleasure to be here talking with both of you. Art is the Annabelle Irian Warsham Centennial Professor of Psychology and Marketing at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the founding director of many, many things. I'm just going to name some of them. Uh, the Human Dimensions of Organizations program, which is a fantastic leadership program. Uh, he's the former executive director of the IC Squared Institute, which is a really unique institute bringing scholarship and policy, particularly at the local and state level together. And he's currently vice provost for continuing and professional education and new education Ventures at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, In his spare time, Art is a prolific and insightful writer for many uh, important publications, both academic and uh, non-academic. He writes for Psychology Today, for Fast Company, for the Harvard Business Review, publishes in all the leading peer-reviewed journals in psychology and other fields, and he's written a number of wonderful books that I want to recommend to those of you who have not read them yet, Uh, Smart Thinking, which is really a wonderful book on learning to think uh, more effectively. Smart Change is another book focused more on organizational change. Bring Your Brain to Work, wonderful title. I wish I had thought of that title first, Art. (laughs) And uh, Brain Briefs, co-written with our colleague, uh, Dr. Robert Duke. Uh, Beyond the UT campus, Art is often heard in various settings as a prominent public lecturer, and he's the co-host with Bob Duke uh, of Two Guys on Your Head, which is a KUT radio show and podcast that I highly recommend to many of you. And most importantly of all, Art uh, plays saxophone in an Austin ska band called uh, Phineas Gage. What Art does not do is sleep, obviously. Is that correct, Art? (laughs) Uh, You know, no, I'm a big believer in sleep, actually. (laughs) I think you actually sleep more than I do. You're just more efficient than I am. I think that's what it is. So, Before we turn to our conversation with Art, and today we are going to talk about uh, the effects of the pandemic, uh, which is still going on, but is in a different phase from where it was uh, two, almost three years ago. We're going to talk about the effects of the pandemic on the ways we interact with one another as citizens, the ways our civics have changed uh, for good and for bad following the pandemic. Uh, But before we talk about that, we are going to turn to our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? Our Lonely Midnight Feasts. Okay, you're getting me hungry already. Let's hear it. It seems a wonder the sky doesn't fall, that the world still spins we don't see at all, for we've escaped from the guts of the beast, from our cold and our lonely midnight feasts. 
So pardon us if we forget the tunes of anthems we sang like the lakeside loons, as if the truth could be bought with a song that comes to nothing, just a worthless dong. So pardon us if we should curse the times or seek some comfort in the childish rhymes. Our lives are but the flippings of dimes. Some they look forward, still some look behind. So pardon us if we don't understand how urgent the ghosts, how cold the hand that meets injustice, that will stop the band which tries to play on top of the graves, so we forget what our own spirit craves. It seems a wonder the sky doesn't fall, or change its hue, or swallow us all. I love it, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the discombobulation uh, of living uh, with so much death, uh, but also of being on our own for so long uh, that I think so many of us experienced uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, or the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, I should Mm say. Um, And the ways in which people um, in that strange headspace turn either to a sort of desperate cynicism or reliance on small things and still others look for easy answers and big sweeping uh, worldviews uh, that often become extremist or, or deeply troubling. Right, right. So you're struck by the the disorganized and different responses from people. Exactly. Right. So Art, uh, I, I can't think of anyone more well-qualified to comment on this than, than you. You've observed this as a citizen, as a teacher, and of course as a scholar. How would you characterize the responses of, of people to the pandemic? You know, I, I mean, the, it's interesting. I, I think when you watch the movies – uh, when there's a threat, big threat from the outside, there's always been this belief that that would band everyone together, and that, and you know, sort of like in, in Independence Day, you know, the aliens come down and suddenly, <laughs> suddenly we're all one. But, but actually, I, you know, I, I think, I, and 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 of course, you, you know, Jeremy, you would know this from a from a historical standpoint. That's actually rarely the case, and it certainly wasn't the case here, where, uh, in fact, the the threat from the outside uh, heightened a lot of of the divisions that people were experiencing because, you know, in some sense we were, we were afraid, uh, and, and we were unsure of what to do. And, and we, you know, there was a, there was a wonderful onion headline at some point that said something like unprecedented use of the word unprecedented, uh, <laughs> you know, because, because we just, none of us really knew how to act. And, you know, c- consequently we, we tended to retreat back into the comfort of, of the familiar, uh, conversations that we were having with people. And, and I think that, that it, it, um, it, it tended to reinforce, um, our, our pre-existing beliefs and it cut down on the, on the number of interactions we ended up having with, with other people, folks who, whom we might disagree with that, that might actually temper some of our, our, uh, each of our more radical, uh, tendencies, and so I think I think in many ways a lot of people ended up spinning further, you know, further in whatever direction they they tend towards. Anyhow, so so if I if I hear you right, or you're saying it, it narrowed our worlds, it made our world smaller. Well, it, it certainly made our social world smaller, and and it you know that that was true both in terms of the actual people we interact with, but also if we think about media, you know we. Because we weren't having to have conversations with lots of people, we even tended to consume just 
you know, a, a particular narrow strain of media that that often that was fairly consistent with with uh, our our existing beliefs. So yeah, I think I think for most of us, our world did get narrower. And and is it fair to say that this had a widely unhealthy effect on people's psychology, or is that is that overstating the case? Um, you know, I look. I think I think the whole situation had an uh, had a generally unhealthy effect on most people's psychology. I think you know one of the things that that we know from decades of psychology research is that is that the ability to influence the world, or what what psychologists usually call agency, um, has a big impact on your psychological well-being. When you feel like you are the author of your destiny, you feel pretty good about life. And when you feel like you are being carried along by events, you tend to feel relatively bad about it. And of course, the pandemic was something that most of us couldn't, had no control over whatsoever. Uh, and, and consequently, I think most of us just felt stressed and bad about it to begin with. Uh, and so when you combine that with the social isolation, it was, it was just not a good time for most people. How do you think uh, grief, uh, what, what, what role did grief play uh, in this psychological uh, moment in American history? Because, I mean, we were living through times and we continue to live through times when thousands of people are dying of this illness on a regular basis. And yet there never really seemed to be a moment of, of public grief yeah. that, that anyone in society could, could feel attached to. Yeah, Zachary, that's such a, a, a an interesting way of thinking about it. You know, I, I as I've as I've thought about the pandemic, one of the one of the things that's made grief difficult is that grief generally occurs at the point where there is some some distinct passing or loss. And so, you know, the, the death of a loved one, of course, you know, the five stages of grief that we all hear about that, that Kubler-Ross described, she actually described those first not about death, but, but in the reactions of people who were given diagnoses for terminal illnesses. But what's fascinating about each of those is that there's a certain finality that comes to death or a certain finality that comes with the diagnosis uh, for, for an illness that, that is indeed terminal. And, and with the pandemic, while there were lots of people who did die, um, for most of us, the pandemic was, was just this long period of uncertainty. Remember, back in March of 2020, we were thinking, well, surely by May, this will be over. And then by May, we were thinking, well, okay, maybe October or November. And, and it took an awfully long time for us to realize, no, this is actually going to be going on for an awfully long time. It's very hard to grieve a moving target. And so I think we were left with much more anxiety than the ability to, to go through a process of grief that's actually healing. And I guess the uncertainty issue plays out in another way too, right? There's no obvious end, right? There's not a moment when the war ends, when right. the Nazis surrender. And so many of us, myself included as a historian, assumed there would be a kind of 1920s, a post-war moment of celebration and exuberance and we, we never seem to have had that, right, Art? We, we tried, right? In, in May of 21, when, when people started getting vaccinated and before the Delta wave hit, I think people were like, oh, it's over. And then, and then you know, there was the specter of, well, there was still a little bit of COVID out there. And then the next wave hit and we thought, well, okay, it's not over. And so I think we had a couple of false hopes. And then, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There was not an, an, an armistice day. Where, where we could all, you know, have ticker tape parades in the street. And, and one of the things we talked about, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, when we discussed the 1918 uh, pandemic in the United States, the Spanish flu 
as it's often termed, was the way in which generations of people who lived through that moment uh, collectively forgot or refused to talk about their experience, an experience that in terms of death toll was worse than the First World War. Do you think we've, as a society, fallen back on that same strategy of denial? Well, I, you know, I, I think it is definitely something we'd, we'd like to forget. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, you know, it, there, there's very little of it captured in, in television and in, in movies and in, in other and in stories, really. We, we, we have the time before, the time after. And, and even most of the media that was produced, the, 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 the films and the TV shows, really skipped over the masks, right? So, so it, it, we, we have to some degree erased this from from our collective memory of what's going on. And, and I, so, so yeah, I think it's, it, it does seem to be recapitulating that, that, that era. And, and just to dwell on that a little bit, Art, because it's, it's so interesting, right? I mean, uh, with the analogy to a war again, you can make heroic or dystopian movies of world war one that are entertaining, yeah. but a movie about people sitting at home suffering, <laughs> Yeah, or, or or sitting at home waiting and not suffering. Uh, it, it, there's really no entertainment value in that. It's hard to put together a narrative structure. What effect do we know from psychology that these sorts of forgotten moments have on people? I mean, it's an experience you have, but it's an experience where you you not only lack agency, but you lack an articulate narrative, a yeah. way of talking about it. What, what what can we expect that to to mean to people? You know, I, I think one of the things that that is potentially concerning about this is that it it could create a kind of persistent anxiety for people. So, um, my my wonderful colleague Jamie Pennebaker in psychology at, at UT has done some wonderful work on expressive writing when people have gone through a trauma, and and one of the things that that expressive writing about a difficult incident does is it helps you to create a narrative that essentially weaves the strands of your life story together into something coherent, which is particularly important when you've gone through something difficult. I think that that what we're seeing is because people are just kind of stowing away the last few years rather than really analyzing it and telling a good story about it, we have a bit of a disconnect among all of the threads of what happened that, that could actually create some, some long, longer-term anxiety because we, we haven't really told a good story about this era in which there was fear and there were, and we all, I think all of us were, were touched by the pandemic in one way or another. Most of us know a few people at least who died of COVID. And, and if you don't really um, grab control of that and turn it into a, a narrative part of your life, you, you run the risk of just having this general anxiety that doesn't seem to have a source that can have an impact on how you continue to see things moving forward. And, and that's really not a healthy place to be. I've seen some of that, I think, Art, in the way you described it so well, really, um, in some of our students. Mm -hmm. you, you, yeah. you know, they lost crucial years of their high school experience, their social yeah. experience and other things. And, and they don't know where, where to begin to talk about it. Uh, and, and and I think they feel discouraged from even talking about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. It's it was a you know for 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 high school students and college students where these are the 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 period of life that many of us look back on so fondly and and for them they you know they didn't have some of those key experiences but they're not we're not really encouraging people to talk about that and to talk about the loss that's associated with it 
but but rather to you know figure out how to soldier on from that and and yeah i i think it's uh i think actually we should be encouraging people to talk about what that loss was and to talk about what they'd like to make up uh for on that uh because i i think it's 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 just an important part of the of development to to have a a rich story about about your your upbringing you, you know it's funny when you when you think about it i mean i i know my my grandfather what w- went uh went through the great depression as a, as a younger, uh, as a child and teen. And, you know, it, it had a continued impact on his outlook on finances in life throughout his life. And I feel like in part that was because he did not, and was probably never encouraged to step back and ask what did uh, that, that era and not having enough money and not having enough food, what impact did that have on, uh, on his psyche. Precisely. I, I think certainly for my grandparents, there was a similar trauma. Uh, and then there was an even more difficult trauma, the trauma of being a refugee of migration. Mm-hmm. And, and that was even harder to talk about. Yeah. Um, Zachary, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, you experienced this. I, I think as a society, to a certain degree, we have, we're, we're very comfortable with talking about like personal trauma or, or the things that we've personally overcome. But talking about these things on a collective level is really difficult. So I think that, that, there's a sense that like, okay, all of us suffer this together, particularly among young people, right? There's this sense of collective suffering, um, but it's not something that you talk about because it's something that, that, that implicitly everyone around you, you assume to understand, even though we all experience the pandemic in different ways. So I think to a certain degree, we, we, we've attempted to move on with a sort of acknowledgement of this shared experience that remains tacit and, and unspoken. Hmm. Art, are there good models for addressing this this lacuna? Yeah, well, I mean, as I say, I think I think that that some of the work that that Jamie Pennebaker does of suggesting that we that we actually write about it, write write about what did it what did it feel like? What was it like? You know, those those the darkest moments you had. What were they like? It's unpleasant to do that. It's no fun to write about difficult times, but it does help to create that story. And I think that that actually, in this case, because of exactly what Zachary was saying, that it's a shared uh, experience. That that after writing about it, sharing that writing, talking about it, and and sharing some of the language around it. You know, one of the one of the the one of the things that that makes language so powerful is it gives us words to name things. And once we have those words and and can use those, it they become things that we can then manipulate psychologically. And I think if we had a, sh- a more of a shared vocabulary around. Uh, around the pandemic, it actually might help us to to move on from it uh, a little bit more easily. Art, do you think that uh, the difficulty we've had in narrating and naming our feelings of the last few years, has that contributed to what so many of us have seen, which is uh, what, what appears to be a degrading of civic institutions and civic relations, the way people talk to one another, the way they interact with one another? Um, do, you, do you see these as related phenomena? Well, you know, I think in order to engage in civic life, you, you, you have to be willing to talk about things and you have to, be, you have, to have some amount of common ground. You know, the, the core to being able to have any discussion and, and for that discussion to be meaningful is for there to be some, some sort of common ground, meaning that there's both a common set of concepts that you want to refer to and a common language for talking about it. 
And, and if you lack that, then, then it's very hard to communicate. There's some classic studies done in the 1960s about giving directions uh, in New York City. And, and what they found was if, if a New Yorker was giving directions to another New Yorker, they needed way fewer words to tell them how to get from one place to another than if the New, a New Yorker was speaking to someone who wasn't from New York. Because in, you know, a New Yorker could just say, look, go head, head downtown four blocks and then you know, make a left and it's, it's a, half a, block, a half a block up the street. Whereas you, know, you have to orient somebody towards like which direction is uptown versus downtown and things like that if, if, if you're speaking to somebody who's not a New Yorker. And I think that what's happened to, to in, in our, with us right now is because we don't have a lot of common language. And, and I think this extends to common language related to the political response to the, to the pandemic as well. We don't have common language for that, which makes it difficult for us to then begin to talk to each other about the pandemic, but about lots of other things as well. Because I do think the pandemic brought to the surface very different beliefs about what the government should be doing, about, about the relationship between individuals and civic institutions. And those differences were, were never named in a way that, that gives us a, a common way of discussing that. And, and that's just made it very difficult for us to communicate with each other about some of the very difficult things that have happened politically over the last few years. It, that's so well said, Art. And, and I feel this myself. I, I want, like you, to be able to talk to everyone. But I have found it so hard to talk to people who are vaccine deniers. Mm-hmm. Or, or COVID deniers. Um, and it seems as if those attitudes have only hardened. Um, how do we understand that? And, and what do we do about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing that we have to do is, is to recognize that, that we are in a, in a real way speaking a different language from people who hold this vastly different set of beliefs and have not really uh, had an opportunity to have conversations about those with anyone other than the folks that they believe in and uh, that believe the same way that they do. And so what, what happens is a lot of people will, will write a lot of words about this and they'll post them on the internet or post them as comments on social media. I occasionally get emails from people based on things that I've written, uh, you know, with who hold different beliefs, but, but there's no conversation happening. And I think that that's actually that critical piece is ultimately, um, that, that in order to communicate with people who hold very different beliefs about the pandemic, uh, for example, than, than, than we do, is to actually have conversations in which there's a real back and forth. Because the, what, what conversation does is it, it forces each of us to think similarly for some period of time, even if we believe we disagree we have to agree on the terms of the discussion in order to be able to communicate effectively. And, and that's what that, you know, so the, the paradox is that when you have a conversation with someone that you disagree with, you leave that conversation thinking more similarly to them than when you started, even if you believe you disagree more at the end of the conversation. But how do we do that with people or, or, or not just with, I, I don't think it's an individual people group or, or person necessarily, but, but how do we as a society reckon with the fact that coming out of this pandemic, 
uh, th- those conversations are no longer, or they they don't seem possible anymore. Not just because we disagree with each other so much, but because we can't seem to agree on a basic set of facts, right? On the basic premise from which all sort of conversations about health policy or education or et cetera have to begin. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it has it has become even more difficult. I agree with you because there's there's it's so hard to figure out where even the basis for the conversation ought to be. I think I think you know that what you said is exactly right, and um, you know I think that 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 to the extent that we want to communicate, though, we have to start by trying to find some common ground somewhere, right? And 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 figure out if there's if there's anything. Uh, that we can agree on, and and sometimes the the way to start that conversation is is to focus on things that we might both value, rather than trying to establish a set of of facts or or a set of causal beliefs. You know, I think that 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 at times we we might at least be able to find some commonality in in the in some of the values that we have that we can use to then begin as a as a wedge to start having some kind of conversation that makes a lot of sense um and and what are the things we as a society you think can do to encourage the conversations to go in that direction i mean we're we're recording this right now as we're watching even one party that claims to be about the same things in congress the republican party unable even to talk about how to choose a leader of their own party right so so h- how would you recommend in that kind of setting or any setting that we as a society begin to move conversations in this very productive sounding direction art. You know, I, I, I actually think that one way to do it is, is to make the conversations a little bit more local. Uh, you know, and, and of course, you, you know very well that the power of local politics, right? And that, you know, as much, as, as much time as we spend thinking about the president of the United States and Congress uh, and even the governor of a state and the state legislature, that so much of what affects our daily lives is what happens at the local level. Uh, you know, the, are, are my streets paved? Is there water coming to my house? Do I have power? And, and some of that is, you know, much of that is influenced by, by local issues. And, and I feel like maybe the way out of this is, is to stop looking to Washington, D.C. Uh, in the United States and stop even in Texas looking to, to the State House in Austin and just start thinking about what's happening in my neighborhood, what's happening more locally. Because I think a lot of the disagreements begin to fade be- when, when we're talking about things that are happening in the neighborhood. And, and we can use that to build up some set of common ground that we can then begin to use over time to, to hopefully address some of the, the thornier issues that happen as you pop up to the national level. But I, I think there's, there, there, you're much more likely to find that agreement at the local level, or at least agreement at the, on the terms of discussion, even if you don't agree on how to resolve the problem. Right, right. No, and I think it, you know, it brings us back to a, a, a literature that you, I'm sure, know better than I do, right, from the 50s and 60s, very much on the sociology of neighborhoods and the ways in which neighborhood communities are built. The challenge, of course, is neighborhoods tend to be a little more homogeneous, right? And that's one of the reasons that makes these conversations a little easier sometimes, but it has costs as well, does it not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you, you certainly, there, there's always a danger when you end up in a pure echo chamber, 
and but but I I do think that that if you if you you know you you don't necessarily need to stick in your own neighborhood in order to be able to to talk locally. <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, if in Austin, it's overall is it has some diversity to it, even if even if a particular street doesn't. And so, right. you know, finding people who who really, you you know, you disagree with on some fundamental issues, but are still but still share the common ground of 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 our geography, you know, would would actually create those opportunities to have discussions that that are. Uh, potentially fraught because you're speaking to somebody who who may have significant disagreements with you, but at least you know you are focused on things that are that are more local and and therefore maybe a little bit less tinged with with the national political discourse. Do do you think we've done that as a university art? You know, I I not over the last few years that successfully, uh, in part because of the pandemic. Right. I mean, I, th I think, uh, you know, we, 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 we pivoted as a university uh, early on to to, um, to to do a lot of things on Zoom. We taught on uh, on Zoom. We, we had gatherings on Zoom, but which is, you know, a great platform for convening people so that we can do something during a pandemic. But, you know, it's a terrible platform for having side conversations. Right. Because really only one person can talk at a time. And so I think I think the you know, the, the real question is going to be what happens as we exit the, the pandemic, as we or at least exit that acute phase in which we're not getting together. You know, do we create opportunities for people to convene, but but opportunities for people to convene in spaces in which we uh, then promote some degree of conversation. So I, I have, you know, had the privilege over the years of attending the Great Conversations program that the Annette Strauss Institute at, at the University of Texas runs. And one of the things I love about that is it, you know, there's a, there's a panel, and so everyone sits and watches some speakers. But then there's the encouragement to have a a local conversation at a table that isn't necessarily made up with a bunch of people that 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 are all folks you're likely to agree with. And I I find that to be really, uh, uh, you know, that kind of experience. And that, that's a very powerful thing that a university can do. I agree 100%. Zachary? Yeah. How do we get young people, college students uh, and younger high school students, etc., who maybe have no experience of this kind of productive civics, uh, who have either only seen uh, the divisive politics or the divisive uh, civic discourse uh, and have never actually experienced uh, what the, the power of these local conversations and of true civic engagement, how yeah. do we get them to understand the importance of that and also just basically how to do that? Yeah, um, it's such a good question. And, and, and you know, I, I, I mean, I would I would love to see high schools um, create opportunities for for, you know, classes to get together, you know, to just an individual class, say a, a history class or, a, you know, a, to, to get together with three or four community members and just, just have a discussion, right? I mean, you know, practice having discussions with people and practice saying things where you realize that, that the opinion you hold might not actually be the majority opinion. And, and, you know, just, just getting some practice, articulating some of the things that you believe 
in a in a setting in which it's a true conversation. So it's it's not a debate. There's there's not going to be a winner of the conversation in which in which your goal is just to be understood by the people around you. I think that's the only way we can do it is to practice it. And and I agree with you that there's a lot of people who've had no practice with that whatsoever. And I do think that the pandemic has has limited the opportunities for uh, for high school students and college students to be able to practice that skill. It, it seems to me, Art, it's a set of skills that, for a variety of reasons, a, a wide swath of our population either lacks or has forgotten. Uh, do you agree with that? And what would you do to try to rectify that? I, I do think that that's, that that's the case. I think we, 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 we have not really encouraged people to sit around and have just conversations about things in which, and particularly to have conversations in which the goal is just to learn about the person that you're talking to, as opposed to, you know, believing that you have to win the conversation. I, you know, I, I think, I think we, we have turned conversations into debates in which, you know, at the end of the day, somebody's got to have, so somebody's got to emerge as the winner. Someone has to have convinced the other person of something. And I think, you know, we need to get back to the days of, of, you know, just, just having a conversation with people. Right. And, and right. maybe the best way to practice that is, is, is not to start with controversial topics, but just to encourage people to, you know, get out a little bit more with the people on their street and, <laughs> and just, you know, talk I mean, get outside and have a conversation with your neighbors. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, I mean, how, how rarely most people have the opportunity just to stand out on the yard and, and converse with their neighbors. Absolutely. I mean, it, it seems to me it's of a piece with an overscheduled life yeah. where we, we don't leave ourselves time for the purposeless discussion, which of course has a deeper purpose, but is not directed, as you say, at lobbying someone or trying to get a particular outcome. Uh, yeah. But we don't, we don't have time for that in our lives, right? Yeah. No, I think that's right. You know, the other thing is when you have those conversations with people who you disagree with on other matters, you come to realize their fundamental humanity. And it seems like a weird thing to say, but, but, you know, I think it's easy to demonize the other, right. To, to take somebody and label them as being, you know, in a different, you know, they, they believe they're a member of a different political party than I am. So they are the other, and there's just something wrong with them. And, and ultimately when you, when you sit down and, and have a conversation with people, you realize, no, actually, you know, 99% of what we're trying to do in our lives is pretty much the same. And then there's, then there's a little bit of stuff that, that, you know, around the edges that differs. And, and when you recognize that it, it does create, I think a lot more common ground and a lot more respect that then enables us to begin ultimately to tackle some of the more difficult issues where, where we do have significant disagreements across people. Right. Right. And we know this is true because, uh, when we study, uh, hateful ideologies and hateful groups, uh, what they always try to do is dehumanize the enemy. Yeah. They try to depersonalize, make the enemy seem inhuman, so that justifies whatever the kind of hate or violence is. So clearly, the opposite matters. Uh, That's right. in one way or another. So, so Art, as you know, we always like to close on a, a note of a sort of practical usefulness, uh, bringing 
this vast knowledge that you've shared with us, uh, basically to a practical level for many of our listeners, and you do this better than anyone I know, what, what are the things our listeners can do who are motivated after listening to what you've said to actually make a difference? Uh, clearly, they should go out and talk to their neighbors more, but what are some other steps uh, that you would suggest to listeners who want to make a difference in this direction? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would say, first of all, don't, don't underestimate the value of a cup of coffee, right? I mean, you know, invite somebody that you know and you know you sort of disagree with them. Invite them out for coffee with, with no other uh, intention other than to, to get to know them a little bit better. You know, just do that once. I think that that, that matters. You know, another thing is, is to create, you know, is to, is to create a signal of our common uh, are some of our commonality. One of the things that I was suggesting after the 2020 election was that everyone should stick an American flag out on their yard, just 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 to demonstrate that that you know regardless of the party affiliations we may have, that that fundamentally we still all you know are, are all have some pride in 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 being. Uh, part of the United States, you know, so, so it's, 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 it's not just having those conversations. It's, it's going out of your way to signal that, that we have some degree of, of commonality. And then I would say the third thing is, you know, to the extent that, that we want to be involved politically with people at the moment, maybe focusing more on local issues than national ones uh, for the moment is, is a great way to go. Um, not that there aren't significant national issues that need to be addressed, but but actually we we may find the the best way to to join hands with people who we don't agree with on lots of other issues is to focus on a certain number of things that are happening in our in our backyards that that if we can if we can realize we can work together to solve some problems locally, we might we might create a little bit more of the trust that we need to be able to work on some of the thornier national issues. Zachary, what do you think? Art has given us a compelling case for coffee, for flags, and for going local. Yes, I I, I agree. I think um, you agree on flags. I I, I <laughs> you know my thoughts on on flags already, but I think that uh, the 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 power of of very not just local in terms of issue-based, local issue-based conversation, but local in terms of the people you know, the people you already interact with but have maybe never thought to to really uh, have a deep conversation with. I think that's really powerful. Um, but I also think that what this real post-pandemic civics lesson teaches us is that we need to have more civics lessons mm -hmm. and more regularly. I think one of the things, one of the biggest failings, I think, of our school system during uh, the pandemic was not to prioritize uh, civics education. I think that, that 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 one of the things that one of the most valuable things that a student can take from the classroom is, is how to have a civil conversation. And I hope that that these conversations don't just occur on podcasts or among academics, uh, but also at schools um, and between young people. Well, and I think what this conversation has displayed, and Art has given us so much good material here, is that a conversation about civics is about much more than simply reading the Constitution, exactly. though that's very important too. And it's certainly uh, a conversation about civics is not politically conservative or politically progressive. It actually uh, is not about politics at all. It's about the very ways in which we interact as citizens. Uh, democracy, as our as our guiding spirit, Franklin Roosevelt would say, is about much more than the laws and the, the 
parchment paper. It's about the behaviors and interactions of people. And I think that's what Art has shared with us. Final question to you, Art, to close us out. Are you optimistic? Um, I, you know, I, I mean, I am optimistic, but I, I, I fear that that's also just a trait of mine, that I tend to be a glass half full kind of person. But, but I, I, you know, I, I have, I mean, look, I, I would say that things are never as bad as they seem when times are bad, just as they're never quite as good as they seem when times are good. And, and I, I feel like, you know, people are resilient. And if we're, if we're willing to get out there and to, and to have those kinds of conversations, we, we can begin to, to heal from the pandemic and, and hopefully heal from, from some of the, the other political things that have happened uh, around the same time. You know, you've given probably the best definition of democracy also, right? It's, it's never as chaotic as you think it is, nor is it ever as orderly as you hope it would be. Right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the world we're in, and that's the opportunity we face. Art, thank you so much for sharing your, your insights and your wisdom with us today. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation to talk with you. And Zachary, thank you for your poem and your wonderful questions and insights. And thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for another year of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.